0: In a way, it dehumanizes paradoxically these uh, remarkable individuals, makes them not just sages, but saints. And uh, you know, if you think of some wisdom of a saint, it's not a story that you can emulate, because it's a saint, and you're not a saint. At least, uh, most people probably don't think that they're saints, I hope. Uh... Welcome to the On Wisdom Podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Crossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for the society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners. You were fantastic so far, and please continue rating us on your favorite platform. Today, we'll be talking about wisdom as usual, but I will be switching gears. Over the last uh, half a year or so, We have had guests every single episode. And uh, now uh, Charles and I want to take a step back and take some time to think about what we have learned so far, but also to focus on our internal discussion on the topic uh, that that Charles and I have every few days. And this topic is, can wisdom be taught? Uh, Charles is an educator. I'm also an educator at the university, uh, and we have possibly similar, but to some extent also different perspectives on this. Mm -hmm. And so we thought that maybe uh, an episode of uh, what we have learned from our previous guests, but also what we generally think on this topic would be useful. And so that's what we have today. The topic is, can wisdom be taught? And let me start by pointing out that I get questions about, can wisdom be taught every a few weeks. I received an email or so from an educator. So mm-hmm. last week, it was somebody from the Middle East, mm-hmm. uh, who is very genuinely is interested in uh, developing a curriculum for wisdom, mm. or try to figure out a way to cultivate wisdom or train wisdom.
1: Mm.
0: My former supervisor, uh, Richard Nussbaum, also uh, tends to ask me every uh, month or so, so Igor, is there something new about how to train wisdom? And I'm saying, well, there are some developments, but maybe not uh, as a solid yet in terms of the conclusive evidence. It's a topic, in my opinion, based on my impression, that seems to be of uh, interest to a lot of people. And so a lot of yeah, self-help sure. books are kind of uh, oriented towards it. Like there's so many self-help books that try to teach you how to be wise, but a bit like... but. There are also some fundamental assumptions about it, about what is the nature of wisdom, and we covered it over the course of the last few episodes as well. That I think we need to consider or even reconsider uh, when we think about teaching wisdom. It's like, what is it that can be taught, and what is it that uh, can we actually train? So, anyway, so that's where we're coming in, Charles.
1: Yeah, I mean, I am. Um, it's interesting that people contact you about the idea of, of developing a curriculum because that I think fundamentally from a selfish point of view, the reason why I got interested in looking at wisdom from a scientific perspective is because I thought, well, the only tool that's really that I'm going to be able to believe the sort of findings of will be the scientific method. So we're going to have to use science. But I, I just want to know, I think from a personal level, how does one become wiser and then coming from an education background the idea that you might be able to transmit this or construct something that could help people become wiser that was based on the latest scientific research is incredibly enticing so i i'm not surprised that you get asked that a lot because people's interest in wisdom is probably mainly because you know they want to be wiser right i mean it's it's this really amazing glittering prize wisdom you know all cultures seem to celebrate it so i would have thought a lot of people would be very enticed by the idea that there would be that there could be some sort of program or something that could be constructed by all these people all these scientists working on this that could help yeah that's absolutely i mean the the one hand because of all the ted talks and
0: podcasts Mm -hmm. and uh, books that all seem to be promoting this idea oh you didn't know you need this x yeah. But let me tell you why X is cool. And now, at the end, in the last 15 seconds, <laughs> let me tell you all you need to know about how to make X better. Yeah. And X can be wisdom, empathy, resilience whatever. Or grit, A resilience or yeah. grit. Resilience, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just find it amusing. People contact me because if they would have known me, <laughs> and my wife would have said I'm the f- most foolish person there is.
1: Well, that could uh, be the whole sort of uh, me-search idea, You uh, investigating wisdom because you feel it's something that you need more of. <laughs> well, I don't know if I, that's quite the Cases just like I, I think I serendipitously
0: ended up with the topic, and it's right. truly fascinating. But I, I certainly am aware of my limitations, let me put it this way. Sounds, sounds um, wise,
1: Ego. Oh man, oh, I man, see what man, you've uh, done there. Very clever. That's self deprecating <laughs> wisdom.
0: No, no, it's not <laughs> humble breaking. I genuinely believe that I'm fairly foolish, and I can even give you some examples afterwards. Um, okay, so can, uh, can wisdom be taught? So let's start with this question. Uh, and the first question I think uh, that is often, and you and I discussed that several times, is: is the role of what is the role of formal education? Is it something that we should be teaching in school, or is it something that people should be uh, learning on their own, uh, uh training themselves at home? And it seems like there are different perspectives on that. So, mm, so yeah. Charles, you have a, an opinion on this topic, so yeah. I'll let you start, and I'll
1: tell you what I think. <laughs> <laughs> um Well, I guess it's just before we look at what does the science say about whether it can be taught, which is the kind of the main thing that we're looking at, just stepping back and saying, should we be teaching this? And if we should, is formal education the right place for it? So a couple of thoughts I have. One is like, I got a birthday card from my best friend, Craig, last year. And uh, it had a wisdom theme because, you know, I'm banging on about it all the time. But it was quite quite interesting. It said, said, um, before being old and wise, first, you must be young and stupid. And I thought, hmm, that's kind of an interesting interesting point about youth. You know, perhaps there's this idea when, when I look at sort of programs which try and inculcate young people in the ways of wisdom, you think, mm-hmm. should we be setting such a high bar on young people? Can't they just sort of enjoy themselves, let their hair down a little bit and not have to become these kind of Abraham Lincoln-esque figures when they're like in, you know, fourth grade or something? Is that just... Is that sort of an adult way of looking at things? And really, it could even damage the idea of a sort of natural childhood. So that's kind of one concern I would have. What do you think about that?
0: So I think uh, the issue here is it depends on... What do you mean by wisdom in the first place? Yeah. And uh, is it just like a, appropriate behavior? And what is appropriate then, right? Like right, right. Uh, for a given uh, age group. In, and some people say that educationally it is appropriate uh, for young kids to make mistakes because that's the only way you learn. So that's mm. basically the mm. idea that, that I think you also just uh, pointed out. Mm. And so like intervening there. I guess it's all the matter of degree. To what extent do you want to intervene? I I can certainly see how kids could make mistakes that they would never recover from like you know like yeah. oh okay let's yeah. try everything oh how about heroin Yeah. A crack cocaine yeah, yeah. like yeah. explore you know that's that's, that's great try and mistakes. Know, yeah adapt- yeah. Adapt- get so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no problem i mean, it's like uh, no so that that is a problem right mm. that's like uh so, so to that, what extent when do you want to intervene and when do you want to let it go well I, mean, I think that uh, so there is some kind of a, probably a Moderate amount. Yeah. And in, uh, in different countries, it's, it varies. So, like, if you think about as the John Hyde has this new book, I think about coddling That's right. with the American yeah. mind. It's like, you know, like they're overprotecting of the kids that you just like. Certainly in the middle class and among the affluent people who can afford it, they do everything possible, schedule every single second of their child and Mm. then uh, don't let them make mistakes. Mm. And uh, that can be, of course, detrimental. But I can also see the opposite, as I said, like if you're like from a working class background or if you live in a slum or in a ghetto, you may want to protect child, just like you can't because you may Mm. be gone the whole day or you you just try to make at least some money. So my, my take on it is it's a matter of balance as usual. Mm. Now who will figure out how much is balanced and how much is too much or too little. Well, that's a tricky question. And, and also know it, that. Yeah, it depends,
1: I guess on the, on the age, because like in terms of, um, you know, when children are very young, the parents are sort of making wise decisions on their behalf, essentially, you know? Yeah. And then at some point when they become adults, they have to make those decisions themselves. So I guess it's just, what point do we think it's uh, reasonable to expect young people to begin to make wise decisions for themselves because you couldn't expect a five-year-old to design its own daily diet, you know, and that would be unreasonable to expect that level of wisdom um, from a five-year-old, but but it needs to be yeah. by the time you're older. So, okay, just, there's lots of things we could talk about here, but what sort of, do you have any sense of what age would, is a kind of an appropriate age to get children to begin to think about taking decisions themselves using the sort of apparatus of wise reasoning. Do you have a sense around that?
0: No, nah, it's, it's hard for me to say. I mm-hmm. think the, I'm not a developmental psychologist, mm-hmm. and certainly not early childhood development. So mm-hmm. I don't know all the most recent uh, nuances of how mm-hmm. people think about that. But uh, I definitely see that there are different traditions and throughout the last two centuries There'd be very different perspectives on this. Like how mm. much, to what extent, they could go all the way back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and even earlier mm. about the role of education, what does education So Is it mm. a 10-year-old? Is it a 12-year-old? Is it yeah. 16-year-old? Yeah. Is it a 19-year-old, 21? Depends on, it's really, to some extent, arbitrary if you think about it. So, you know, like in Germany, you can drink beer when you're 16, but hard liquor when you're 18. In the U.S., you can't drink either until you're 21, then you cross the border to Canada, you can, and it can yeah. be 19. Yeah. And it's like is guess people are fundamentally different in those countries. So it's like, <laughs> is the genetic makeup of, of, yeah. of a German, uh, Canadian, and American so different that you need these different cutoffs? And yeah. I don't think so. Uh, so it, it is, it's based on some kind of cultural traditions, yeah. right? And uh, as well as... Uh, some serendipitous laws, although the way how laws were integrated and uh, some kind of an agreement within the country with different share uh, stakeholders in the country. Mm-hmm. So, and then it becomes this law, and then it becomes this age. What we am trying to say is that a lot of this type of uh, rules of what is the time when a child is not a child anymore, or uh, can be sort of taught to think wisely because they have to make the important life decisions.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, all a lot of it depends. On the cultural context, it depends on uh, the expectations from a child, a definition of if it's still a child.
1: Yeah, you know, In mean, the I Middle
0: guess, Ages, we didn't have children. Uh, like We had children and then we had adults. So there was nothing in between. Yeah. There was no teenager. There was no adolescence. That's mm. a fairly modern concept mm. that we had since the 20th century, actually.
1: If we were going to begin to s- start speculatively, Talk about yeah. what the components might be of some sort of curriculum. Um, now, this is highly speculative, so I am letting you off the hook there, Igor. You won't this won't be held against you when you talk about in the next twenty minutes. I remember speaking. So, you were over in London recently, and it was lovely to yeah. see you. And we went out yes. for noodles, and I remember yeah. chatting to you on the tube we're coming through Piccadilly Circus, and uh, <laughs> and I remember saying, "Look, if it can be agreed upon, let's say in a broad sense, what the components of wise reasoning are." Yeah. Um, could you not then say, okay, these are the three components, for example, that seem to we're settling on as components of wise reasoning? Can we then just take each of those components and work out what practices would enhance or boost those components? And then by doing that, wouldn't that lead to an overall increase in wise reasoning? So, if we like uh, thought about that for a moment, from looking at a couple of your papers, like the way you describe wise reasoning, you have sort of three aspects to it what, you know one it's is-
0: not an ex- exhaustive list sure uh, sure are yeah, just the key do- ones that are easy to measure yeah
1: yeah so maybe you could just quickly tell us those and then the, if we just looked at each of those are there things that can be done that exist practices that exist already that could lead to the boosting of those but maybe tell us what they are first and then we can
0: yeah so I mean like that. we often look at uh, intellectual humilities so or recognizing your knowledge is limited and sure. uh, uh, some kind of a uh, form of dialectical perspective or events which involves generating uh, a lot of different ways how the situation may unfold, so a form of creativity and uh, just general recognition that
1: the nothing influx,
0: uh, unfold- yeah. is Yeah, exactly. Nothing goes on the line. Uh, and, and then the perspective taking is another important one. So consider different perspectives on an issue, social perspectives on an issue. I mean, I would say actually there's another ones about integrating these different perspectives yeah. together. Sometimes it's harder to measure that than others.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, But uh, it's definitely theoretically very important. It's not only recognizing different viewpoints, but it's also Figure out if there is something in common between them, or at least consider the possibility of
1: that. Yeah. So, okay, so we've got sort of intellectual humility. Again, uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but the intellectual humility, uh, recognition of the world, the world is in flux, and then. Seeking and integrating multiple perspectives, perhaps on an issue, can those be individually tackled? Are there are certain things that can be done to increase one's intellectual humility. For example,
0: yeah, I mean, uh, so so far we find that you could temporarily, and I emphasise this is just temporarily, which means that in the short term, you can activate intellectual humility or make people recognize great intellectual humility by, for instance, ask them to talk about themselves in the third person, about the challenge that they are having like a a conflict with somebody, or political election, or economic prospects uh, of themselves. Like, will they be able to find a job? So yeah, so if you do that from this kind of detached perspective, talk about yourself in the third person, you're more likely to recognize limits of your knowledge.
1: Okay. So that's, that's promising. Is yeah, the a point effect, here is, yeah.
0: yeah, that's right. The point is we don't know how, how long does this effect last mm-hmm. and also if you can then keep it after you're not instructed to take a third-person perspective anymore. So but, that's something that we're still kind of exploring right now. Then probably we should save that for another episode. Yeah, for sure, here. for sure.
1: But I was thinking if it's a short-term effect, there could be a series of... Uh, what you call them, like thought experiments or thought programs to run prior to taking a decision that was important. Yeah. So say yeah, so,
0: so yeah, you were sitting yeah, down, absolutely. someone saying,
1: right, mm-hmm. you're going to decide, uh, you decide whether you're going to go to college or whether you're going to go straight out into the world and be, a you know, an entrepreneur. It's a big decision. Here are some things that would be helpful to do that would create a temporary likelihood that you'll be more wise in your reasoning.
0: That's right. I mean, in fact, I even... I, um, was brainstorming about that, but this is highly speculative. Again, <laughs> that's uh, the theme of the capitalist. Episode, yeah. yeah, highly speculative yeah, yeah, as usual. And yeah. uh, I was just brainstorming at uh, seeking funding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I mean, like I was thinking, you know, like if you can figure out if people are in this kind of stressful situations, and mm. um, can we then? Yeah, identify the situations through some kind of, you know, biomarkers, physiology, mm-hmm. uh, stress uh, markers uh, shooting th- through the roof, mm-hmm. and then when oh, we I identify see. them, then right. we give them, oh, you seem to be having a challenging time. On oh, in case uh-huh. you need some advice, here's a set of things you could do to improve your reasoning or ways Brilliant. to handle the situation. Uh, the the issue is that if you can locate the moment at which the person has to make a decision exactly. and then intervene and tell yeah. them, hey, you know, if you talk about it from a third-person perspective, maybe yeah. it will help you. Or maybe if you talk about it from a kind of future-oriented perspective, it may help you, or something else. Yeah. You know, there are a bunch yeah. of different strategies you can use. But the point is, I think, oh, we can tell people just, here's a set of strategies you can use when you're in a difficult moment, because when they are in a difficult moment, <laughs> yeah. they often forget about everything yeah. that you have told them before.
1: And in fact, like... Um there's sort of a yeah, there's a certain amount of uh, wis- wisdom or in or intelligent social intelligence required to identify this as a kind of decision in which you need wisdom or social intelligence, right? So, so that's right. That's a trap, exactly
0: yeah. what. Uh, that's that's exactly part of this definition of Aristotelian wisdom. So ideally, you would be the person. So if, maybe if you're more intellectually humble in general, mm. that you would be more likely to recognize that this is the moment where I need mm. to do X. But if you want to just Based on this research that uh, my lab has done so far and some other labs, but then that's not what, that's not the stage where we're at yet. Mm. Instead of that, we what we can say is that okay, so if you do X, then you do Y. Yeah. So we need to uh, make people do X, and that would require some kind of external interventions. <laughs> so this this is a general notion of nudges, so which is a very yeah. popular idea yeah. in economics right now. And wh- what I'm saying is that to nudge wisdom, you need to know. Uh, very specifically what the moments are in which the nudges would work. And then I critically activate them. And this is a very challenging task because you we don't know how exactly to communicate it to people so that this is the moment where you need to do X.
1: Yeah, because it's not as simple as just stress, is it? I mean, there'll, there'll be situations that require wisdom yes. that you yeah. aren't demonstrating any biological physiological markers of of.
0: that's right i mean and there are also multiple reasons why you may have a particular stress physiology uh, so stress is multi-determined so to say Uh, you may be working on a challenging task you may be thinking about a divorce you may be x and y
1: yeah interesting but i but it, it makes a lot of sense although it's sort of well, it's quite practical. It's a practical approach because it's subverting the idea that people need the skill of identifying the situation themselves It's trying to hack that. But is that denying and op- denying people the opportunity to develop that skill? Or maybe it's not, maybe it's helping them because they'll begin to realize oh, I keep getting bleeped every time this, <laughs> this situation emerges. So I, I can, I'm you, they'll get better at identifying that kind of scenario. Yeah.
0: I mean, I don't
1: know. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah, but the b- bottom line is that this, uh, this line of work uh, leads to possible ways to train wisdom through nudges, Mm. but how exactly to implement it in real life and how uh, long-term and long-living these effects are. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you talk about yourself in the third person, and then it changes the way you think about issues. uh, We don't know yet. So that's something for future research. And uh, hence, I'm hesitant uh, when people say, hey, So you seem to know how to train wisdom. It's like, well, not really. Train wisdom, it's just more like activate it or boost it or whatever you want to Mm. call it. So tell me how can I do it in a curriculum form? It's like, well, okay. Yeah. That doesn't work just like that because curriculum uh, means that you can teach people. I mean, first of all, curriculum seems to have kind of a didactic and the less experiential thing. And we're Mm. talking here about that Mm. experience. Mm. So you can not tell people what experiences they should be uh, seeking but it still kind of has a didactic nature, right? So it's, yeah. it's different. I mean, how would you do that? You're a, yeah, just, uh, teaching math, so yeah. how
1: would you well, I, apply I, I, that? Just I wanted to catch up on with something you just said. Like I'll come back to that in a sec. But it sounds like what you've said is that there is there are sort of strategies that one can adopt. If one's in the lab and you do these strategies, the following decisions will be wiser, Say let's say that loosely. But you're saying, how do people know in the real world, when to employ those. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but could you not in this training program sort of tease out what the, what are the sort of components that people should be looking out for in their day-to-day lives? I mean, there must be like, even if they're not biomarkers, there must be kinds of scenarios that people could be taught to flag up for needing to employ these kind of strategies that would boost their wise reasoning. Does that make sense? There must be sort of profiles. Certain kinds of situations are ones where you probably need to kick in to these interventions.
0: I mean, ideally, there should be. uh, We don't have enough research on this yet. Mm. So, I mean, I'm planning to do something along those lines. Depends on funding situation Mm. end of this year. But uh, it's, it's, it's surprising how little actually there is on this topic and how little has been done. In part, uh, as we talked about this with Barry Schwartz earlier, we could potentially know on average, what kind of situation. So like we could create this kind of average profiles. Yeah, You know, like we, ma- we survey thousands of people and then get their responses. Mm. about in this type of situations on average what are the strategies that would be useful blah 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 and like in this type of situations on average if you have this type of level of stress physiology where should you be intervening okay but then like for each individual maybe slightly different
1: i mean just one sort of slightly odd thought is could you work the other way around i mean are there any situations when you shouldn't be doing this <laughs> i mean isn't it something? Yeah, for
0: sure. Like if you uh, if you're making love to somebody, talking to yourself with a third person,
1: that's not necessarily be the most. <laughs>
0: It'd be quite uh, spooky. <laughs> well, I think I don't know. Depends on your sexual drive, I guess. But yeah. I mean, it could certainly label your sexual drive to some extent. I would say.
1: Yeah, for sure. But but I, I mean, okay, that's a fair point. That's a fair point, Igor. But my point, I think, is is kind of valid as well. Saying most probably, most of the time. It would be helpful to be using strategies that are going to help you take a wiser decision, unless you are saying it's too exhausting and you know it's it's just going to drain you by thinking like that all the time. I mean,
0: well, okay. So the, I think we talked about that earlier too when um, we started discussing the concept of wisdom and its relationship to intelligence. So, like, you are just if by wisdom again we mean specifically wise reasoning, and the sort of deliberate strategies, they may just not be always as effective. Uh, and so if you have to make a decision right now, in this moment, because you have, I don't know, uh, the train is approaching you and your car is stuck in the middle of a train track, Yeah, yeah. what should you do? And the train is like five meters away. Mm-hmm. You su- you hear the sound and your seatbelt is stuck in and you have yeah. to figure out how to break out of the car. Yeah. You know, like talking to yourself, okay. <laughs> what would Ever do now? That's (laughs) probably not the strategy to save your life. So so I'm saying, and that's not necessarily because it will not activate wisdom. It may not activate wisdom in that moment, that's for sure. (laughs) But it's also, even if it did activate wisdom, that type of wisdom that you need to get out of the car is different from wise reasoning that we're talking about here.
1: Right. Yeah, fair. All right. I point taken I, I can accept that
0: um, but i mean you're probably right that in uh, most situations that we would classify as in need for wisdom because that's, i'm a bit unfair here i'm saying you know this type of situation where you're stuck uh with your car in the middle of a track uh i mean that there you doing even need wisdom in the first place would you be calling that wisdom Mm. Uh, or some kind of survival instinct and speed of processing information mm. and uh, the ability to uh, agility to some extent. Mm. But in most situations, which we would typically talk about wisdom, two things happen. Number one, you do tend to become really immersed in the experience. So, getting sort of unstuck, decentered, or whatever, or distancing yourself, different ways to say the same thing
1: here, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. would be helpful, probably. Because to counteract you are, that natural to counteract, set, set, counteract set, this
0: yeah. uh, kind of immersion and like yeah. not recognizing as like say arousal, maybe if you are a true expert, you will not be as immersed. You will still yeah. have this kind of impartial perspective. <laughs> but I do believe that even for experts, when issues are at stake, when they believe something is at stake, and there's actually some evidence to that uh, that even they. Start to become partial because they immerse themselves. Yeah. So yeah. So you're probably right, but we have certainly haven't explored all the possible situations yet. But I think that removed us a little bit from yeah, uh, the key yeah. thing about the teaching and the curriculum, which we want to talk about next. Yeah.
1: I mean, I um, when I was asking you, well, surely you could teach people the situations that they need wisdom in. Um, it reminded me of this stuff that I was reading about uh in preparation for this episode, which was saying. There's this famous like Good Samaritan experiment, you know, uh, study where people who were taught, you know, given a sermon or um, instructed to, I think, instructed to write a sermon about the Good Samaritan didn't necessarily behave in more Good Samaritan esque ways. And then also professionals who've been taught ethics don't necessarily behave any more ethically. So this is a problem, right? Because we're saying, if you're going to get all these kids of whatever age in the classroom, and we finally worked the wisdom is, and the kind of situations you need to adopt it, and the kind of things that you need to do to trigger it, you can tell them that till you're blue in the face. It doesn't seem like it will lead to any wise behavior.
0: Yeah, so the studies that you, or studies, there are multiple studies that you refer to here, mainly show that having the knowledge of something about morality, for instance, or wisdom doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it. Right? So you can have the knowledge, you can be reminded of how to be virtuous. It doesn't mean that you would be acting virtuously when you pass by somebody who is in need. Uh, or if you're like a professor for ethics, Oh, well, it goes back to the good place. Like Chile yeah, is not yeah. necessarily the most virtuous person, yeah. uh, even though he knows everything about ethics. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, so. Uh, so, what do we do about it? Mean,
1: yeah, I mean, does that mean that uh, a wisdom curriculum would have to be experiential? Coming back to our.
0: Right, so it has to have an experiential component. I mean, you, can, yeah. uh, you, you, you need both, right? Like, you kind of need the knowledge too, because otherwise you're doing something, but you don't know why you're doing it. It's like somebody who's speaking their native tongue without knowing the grammar, and then uh, mm. somebody else asks them to explain the grammar, and they have no idea what to do. Or if they are stuck with, you know, like you have a, you have a student who's uh, very good, it's their language, uh, they grew up with that language, and they can express themselves well, but then they get feedback from their supervisor. For so-and-so standard that you're using in your field, you have to use more active voice, and they have no idea what active voice is. Yeah. Okay, so, it's a, so you kind of need that knowledge. You need to have the knowledge of wisdom probably in the curriculum too, but that doesn't mean that you can apply it, and that would involve having an experiential component. But what I'm trying to say is that you cannot have just experiential component yeah. either, yeah, because then uh, you have the reverse problem.
1: Yeah, so you're going to need both. So, we're, so it sounds like we're getting somewhere. You we're putting some flesh on these bones. We have two elements that you would need in this curriculum so far. There's going to be some sort of content, um, and there's going to be some sort of so there's going to be some sort of didactic. This is how wisdom works um and then there's going to be it needs to be some field work i suppose isn't there
0: yeah i think i mean because you kind of need to be deliberative in recognizing wisdom in others the lack of wisdom in others too and uh, so that's where this kind of didactic approach is uh, important and uh, that kind of having knowledge about something and then be able to apply it by yourself in your own life and you need something possibly entirely different
1: i was reading one of your papers you oh which one of, sorry wisdom and how to cultivate it
0: Okay, so that um,
1: paper. Yeah, so that paper. In that paper, you um, you sort of suggested gently a few different sort of things that that might potentially be helpful in this kind of area. And you, right. I'm just going to sort of list them and we can talk about them a little bit. One was uh, reflecting on personal experiences. One was narratives depicting exemplars. One yeah. was stories communicating wisdom-related lessons. And then there was practical strategies. So... This is kind of interesting because you know you you're, you've been quite you know you said look i 'm being speculative uh during the, the the whole of this episode, but here you were kind of saying look these are th- these are things that I would suggest from what we know so far could be helpful parts of some sort of program so mm-hmm. so what does re- reflect on personal experiences what well, what are you getting at?
0: So, I mean, uh, uh, to clarify that part, uh, uh, what I wrote in this European psychologist piece was a critique of the lay intuitions as sort of like the more general ways, like, oh, I want to teach wisdom. Well, I'll just try to teach it like anything else. And I was just critiquing all those pieces and saying, well, no, you can't just do it like that. You have to possibly consider also these other pieces. So, for instance, for personal experience, personal experience doesn't automatically uh, translate into wisdom. Otherwise, all older adults would be much, much wiser than younger adults. I mean, surely, like older adults have more personal experiences than younger adults. I mean, that just goes without saying. In fact, age is more like a proxy for experiences. Yeah. Uh, But it's not true that all the adults are by default wiser in every single domain than young adults. It's specific to a different domain. And so how do you get around learning from your experiences without becoming traumatized by them? Because if, if the idea is that you learn wisdom through adversity, through this kind of challenging, difficult experience, traumas, if you want. Well, we also know that the opposite is true. Like if you have a trauma, then you have a PTSD. Right, uh, right, and uh, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so you know, yeah. like a, it's not like that. Everybody who is returns from Iraq uh, in the United States uh, to yeah. the United States, or from Afghanistan in in Britain, they suddenly are wiser.
1: Yeah, we're not recommending that.
0: Yeah, that's not the way, path to It's Not yeah. necessary. So what do you do? Uh, so I mean, there are different ways to reflect on your experiences, mm-hmm. so and those are just speculations as well. Mm-hmm. But there is some research that suggests that, you know, if you reflect on your experiences and you relive it again and again and again, uh, well, what that may do is it may just push you down the rabbit hole of your misery and yeah. uh, you would just develop this uh, pathological tendencies. Whereas if you, uh, abstract yourself, de-center, uh, look at yourself from different perspectives uh, yeah. when looking at that si- situation that you have the challenge with uh, a traumatic experience. But then you may actually learn something from it because you reconstruct this experience in new ways. Yeah. So that would be sort of one idea. So, right? And also, so I guess,
1: of, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, the, the, I, I think from the context that I was reading it in, you were, you were sort of just suggesting that there needed to be a personal component to it as opposed to it being impersonal like you know so you're saying if you're presenting you're just telling people stories about or scenarios that are, that, are not connecting it or encouraging them to think about their own experiences in this context that it won't land as well so i, I th- right so that's another
0: thing right yeah. so that's why you bring up uh, a very important other aspect of how a teaching curriculum for wisdom may be instituted, and how problematic it is to just take something and think is a great idea and try to use it without recognizing the possible psychological processes that are playing a role here. So the idea is that in a lot of different philosophical and religious traditions, there is this emphasis on exemplars or so stories. But wisdom is about transmitting stories. Like, look at the Sufi texts. If you look at the Christian, the biblical, not just Christian, but biblical texts. If you look at stories in South Asia or East Asia, a lot of them are operating this kind of metaphorical level. Or by presenting you with a set of sages uh, who are this remarkable individuals, Confucius. So, like more recently, like in the United States, for instance, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Gandhi, I don't know, if you're like a literary buff, you would say Tolstoy, something like that. So like people who tend to be male for whatever reason, uh, except for Martha Theresa, even though there's a disagreement how wise she was. And so you say the idea is okay, so I'll just give you the stories of remarkable individuals, and then you get wiser. It's like, well, that's not so fast. I mean, what is it in their stories that you can actually learn from, and how can you apply it to your life? Because if you cannot think about applying it to your life, you may know about the general knowledge, but then again, you have the problem of it translating it into your behavior when you have a problem in your life so this kind of translating is the part that i was trying to emphasize
1: so yeah so you're you're saying the usefulness of exemplars you have to be a little bit careful about how you do well how can it go wrong like what what's bad is there anything bad about could it be damaging well i mean one thing
0: that can happen is that you think you read about this remarkable people at the height of you know, their uh, best decisions that they have made in their lives or the mm. decisions that change the world, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I mean, I'm not underplaying it. I'm just saying that if you do that, you may get an impression that wisdom is this kind of unattainable thing. And it really becomes more inspirational in nature than something that you could mm. apply in your life. Because, mm. you know, like you are not... about to resolve apartheid in Africa. (laughs) All right. You're not to promote uh, civil rights among uh, different racial groups in the United States and so on and so forth if you focus on those moments and those behaviours, those episodes, it's really hard to then translate that to, well, how am I supposed to be, what yeah. am I supposed to be learning from yeah.
1: that? Yeah, So you that could to... be damaging actually, yeah. couldn't it? Because you could, right. you're looking at sort of the edited highlights of someone and saying, well, I, my, I'm nowhere near you know, taking those kinds of decisions yeah. so perhaps it's too big a gap so I'm and drop out of this process.
0: Yeah, in in a way, it dehumanizes paradoxically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dehumanizes these uh, remarkable individuals, makes them sage uh, not just sages but saints. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if you think of some wisdom of a saint, well, that's not really something that you can learn from because you you know, it, it's not a story that you can emulate because it's a saint and you're not a saint. At yeah. least uh, most people probably don't think that they're saints. I hope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but they, so,
1: but do this I, does suggest. If you were to highlight a broader range of their behaviour, say, would that then be useful? So if you were going to say, hey, look, Mahatma Gandhi might have done these great things, but there are also some not great things. Some people might say, hey, why are you you messing with Mahatma Gandhi? But in fact, that could be more useful because you're saying, look, the kind of decisions he took weren't always these perfect decisions. So that that could be more useful, perhaps, in giving a broader range of their behaviour. Yeah, I mean, I think
0: uh, that's, uh, that's precisely what I'm thinking. And I mean, I'm not, I mean, I, I wrote about it to an extent to point out also the variability in wisdom and as, as a hopefully a hope, uh, a, a positive message mm. uh, where you would say, well, you know, you may have acted foolishly, but you can also have the capacity to act wisely, similarly to how this remarkable people who whom you think have acted wisely in their lives, but also they acted foolishly and showed hubris in their lives as Mm. well. Mm. Uh, So that's a hopeful message that humanizes uh, them and uh, communicates that everybody has to some extent the potential, well, most of us probably have a potential to reason wisely. I mean, it kind of coincides, of course, with the most recent Star Wars movie where Yoda tells Luke that you should also pass on your failures and the, specifically mm. the failures that you can be learning from. And I, would like, I really like that quote. Uh, I mean, The Last Jedi was an interesting movie. Some people didn't like it. Uh,
1: okay, I quite liked it. I, I liked it. Yeah, that. I mean, I, it was it different from the canon. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It was different from the And I think it's the important, canon. you know, for it to, to keep on growing to Evolve, yeah 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 and yoda does talk doesn't he actually mention something about wisdom when he's talking to luke
0: oh uh, well i mean the yoda is the archetype of wisdom if you want one yeah. of the classic archetypes of modern with modern archetypes of wisdom
1: yeah up there with um well i won't i no, won't mention any modern politicians but um so <laughs> so exemplars in, in casual use of exemplars could be quite dangerous but there is a way perhaps of presenting exemplars in a, in a broader yeah. light, which could yeah, you have be to useful. you have to contextualize them. Yeah. You
0: have to present how they lived and why were the decisions that they made and had considered twice in a particular moment in time, mm. and what is it that prompted them to overcome challenges to make that decision. So, it's like if you present that context as well as the negative context where they may have not acted as I would say successfully. Because a lot of this, what sort of we interpret as wisdom now, I mean, it was just like in hindsight, it was a successful move. Mm. A priori, a lot mm. of those things could have failed. I mean, if like, you think about Churchill and Chamberlain, you know, mm. like Churchill is considered the wise ones, Chamberlain, not so much. Mm. But, you know, if we, it could have gone the other way around.
1: So, okay, so I guess to draw a line on the exemplars thing, they can be useful, they can be incredibly useful, but only if you sort of present a broader range of the kind of decisions they took and, and ex- put them in context, then you can extract some useful lessons from that. But without that context, it could be not only not helpful, but potentially quite damaging.
0: Yeah, I mean, so the, if you want to apply something to the concrete aspects of, of your life, you have to make the stories concrete. If you yeah. want people to realise what are the... Key abstract things in the message of the exemplars keep them abstract, but that's not really what we want. I think. I think we want the concrete part here.
1: Yeah, I mean that that was the next kind of thing I was going to talk about was this idea about I think. You, you've spoken about, or was it was it that paper or was it the paper you did with Alex, the one where you talk about, about the level of abstraction in a story? And if a story is more abstract, it can it's shown to be able to convey it, a deeper lesson.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, well, it's not, uh, we just uh, refer to uh, work done in Israel that uh, tried to unpack uh, the relationship between metaphors and their understanding, depending on the level of abstraction. So, I'm not uh, sure if it's that useful, actually, for our conversation here. Yeah. Uh, beyond the point that it's another example where you can just sort th- another way beyond exemplars, people say, well, oh, how about metaphors? Yeah. Uh, maybe we can learn wisdom from metaphors. And I say, well, it depends on all like this kind of uh, fables or stories like uh uh, often involving animals or some uh, random people on a bazaar in the Middle East, or you know, a lot of yeah. the Sufi wisdom is about. If it's an example, would be two people uh, have a dispute because one of them smelled uh, good smells at the baker, and the baker wants this person to pay for the smells. <laughs> and so they come in front of a judge, and the judge is like, "Okay, give me a coin. Okay, here's a coin." Like he flipped a coin, a, fl- a coin of sort of like uh, jumps in the air, uh, rings and lands on the side. And then he says, mm-hmm. okay, now that's your payment. The ring of the coin in the air is your payment.
1: Right,
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> nice. And that's, that's a nice, uh, yeah. nice matter. But well, what do you learn from it, right? So, uh, how can you learn from it? The, 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 I think the take-home message from some recent uh, research is that if the uh, messages presented in this kind of abstract way, people are more likely to learn something from it than if it is presented in a very concrete way about mundane experiences. It's instead of this kind of two people at the bazaar somewhere mm. in Baghdad or something like that mm. in a uh, thousand years ago, it would be you know Jack and uh, Jill uh, <laughs> in the supermarket uh, or blah blah blah. So you make it a very concrete experience. I, I don't know what exactly to make out of it because i don't think people just take this a very concrete story seriously or they filter it they don't activate this type of abstract yeah. processing yeah they don't decenter from
1: it yeah i suppose when it when it's abstract you're asked to do a lot of the work yourself to conceive of the lesson that's right so, so maybe that pulls you in a little bit more and, and activates a different way of thinking about it whereas if it's too yeah. too concrete but then that's interesting because we were just saying it's that it's almost said,
0: the opposite yeah yeah, yeah. it's so almost that's, the opposite of exemplars I mean yeah. but the, th- that's the thing like because for the exemplars they're already idealized and you probably know something about them whereas for the stories yeah uh, with the metaphors you don't know often anything about the stories so it's, kind of, it's kind of abstract messages and to some extent the reason why I don't think it fits is because the consequences here are not about wisdom but about you getting some subjective sense of meaning from the story okay mm-hmm. and so when you are asked and afterwards have you learned something from the story if it is presented at this kind of cr- in a cryptic way instead of in a concrete way you are more likely to say yes and part of it probably because of greater effort to translate it but mm-hmm. there is no work here Showing that the consequences of one or another way of presenting the metaphor are different for your actual ability to reason and solve problems right. in your life. Right. So that work has not been done. So Hence, it, I'm yeah. not sure how it would fit.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you, you may well be better at extracting a lesson, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate into different behavior, which kind of is like the. You
0: don't uh, even this. know if you are able to extract a lesson better. You just may believe
1: oh, right. that that was deep. So we've spoken about what might actually be in the course itself or some of the elements that could be in a speculative, I'm doing air quotes as I say that, speculative (laughs) um, course. But what about just stepping out a little bit and the environment that this is happening in, could that have an influence? Like, are we saying, for example, like the school I used to work at, they were very against group work. They were very much more like, well, Uh you're going to go out into the world as individuals, so you should work in school as individuals. What about the beyond the content itself itself? What about the structure, like the class sizes, the way perhaps the institution itself takes decisions? Could these kind of more structural components influence the likelihood of people learning the wisdom that's in the course? What do you think about that?
0: I mean, I think uh, it's it's a a fascinating question. Uh, To what extent can we shape one's wisdom and its development by using the environment? I mean, I I like the idea. I don't know what those environments would be at this point. Uh, uh, Maybe more collaborative environments, as you Mm -hmm. mentioned, sort of Montessori type of environments, Mm -hmm. not environments where it's all about self-evaluation. Yeah, And it goes completely against the current standards, uh, main frame of education. But I think a lot of the Certainly in the elementary schools, they don't give uh, grades, right? So they don't give grades uh, right away. In many schools anymore. Mm-hmm. Instead of that, you just have some kind of good or bad marks. But yeah, so like, because certainly I think that it's not necessarily environment in the sense of physical environment. I'm not opposed to this type of, you know, Waldorf schools have this type of like, we don't want to have any corners. <laughs> Everything has to be round and you flowing. in the corner. To connect connect yeah. to the cosmic uh, forces. I mean, you know, well, I, was, be, I was thinking just about, about the social environments. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, just looking at like that super practical things, like individual versus, versus group, which is a super basic concept. That's right. But I was just looking back at these um, wise reasoning trio of components. And so we've got intellectual humility, recognition. Ignition of flux, uh, and integration of perspectives, I mean you, it's pretty hard to argue against group work if, if you're trying to encourage intellectual humility, right? If you're trying to encourage multiple perspectives and integration of multiple perspectives, I mean it seems quite a strong case that you should be working in a collaborative fashion if those were the components you were trying to
0: yeah but it's it's you as a a teacher know that that's you know like a group or group work and everybody wants to do group work but at the end uh it just becomes a burden and students like oh another group exercise Mm -hmm. you have to kind of go beyond that you kind of Mm -hmm. you still need to make it somehow clear to students that uh there are Individual interests at stake. Uh, that it's not just about, uh, you know, that somebody else will be doing it for them, or they can just uh, free ride or something like that. I like this idea of a uh, of a jigsaw puzzle, yeah. where you know everybody has to contribute something, and you're doing it in a group, but mm-hmm. you, each of you has to do a unique piece, and if you don't do it, and then uh, the performance of the whole group will collapse. Everybody's responsible for different aspect of a task. Yeah. If that's done well, I think that can be very effective. Uh, but I, I yeah, guess I ultimately it, it, depend, it depends on what the goal is. If the goal is to learn to be less self-focused, the goal is more about doing something together with others because you will learn perspective taking and stuff like that. Certainly like having generally more group-based exercises may be beneficial.
1: Yeah, I mean... The jigsaw learning seems to be a a proposition that would get the best of both worlds, right? So you're going to learn responsibility, taking care of your part of the puzzle, and then you're going to bring that together with other people. So, yeah, I mean, that seems, again, seems quite hard to argue against, but it seems that you're going to definitely benefit from working closely with others if you're that's trying right. to nurture intellectual humility and, and multiple perspective taking. Absolutely. But, but how do you assess it? One of the reasons people work individually in schools is even though schools might say it's because that's what you're going to need to do in the real world, it's just because it's easier to assess. You know, so so many of the structures are set up because it makes it easy to quantify the output, right? Um, so how would we get around that problem?
0: I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah me I mean, so I can see that you could potentially uh, have an individual component, or you can ask the group members to rate each other and assign mm-hmm. the values. And so, if somebody really screwed up, they will hopefully get a lower score by the group mm-hmm. members. Mm-hmm. They anonymously rate everybody else and yeah. they submit it, and the grade can be weighted accordingly. There's still like something at stake for for yourself. Or there are some some sub-individual components, parts of the group exercise where everybody like presents something as part of it, or you, you know, who is, did what in a group project. Yeah. Often it's hard. And it may partially be even unfair because what if the part that somebody took on is harder than the, the, the part that somebody else took on? Yeah. So I, I don't know if that's something that can be figured out. But I mean, again, there's a question is who cares, right? So, like, who cares if like uh, what the, what the actual contribution is if the goal of group work is not the performance, but the ability, or well, the performance of a particular task, but the ability to perspective take, to learn from the other group members, to figure out where they're coming from, to recognize their limitations and stuff like that, and actively engage in that as long as the, Exercise the process of working in the group works smoothly, then you want already. So, that's that's I mean, the oh, yeah. so I guess if you if the, if the question is, would well, you want to evaluate that part? Yeah, well, you that. will not be evaluating it in the group, you would be potentially evaluating people on their own ups- afterwards. Yeah, or maybe you would put them in a new group context in which they will have to solve a problem with people they've never heard of before uh, who come from different perspectives, and you can yeah. either secretly or uh, overtly monitor them and see if they are likely to take turns and listen to each other and stuff like that so yeah there is to, uh,
1: to assess yeah. it yeah, uh, no, but yeah the you're,
0: question you're, is what are you assessing
1: yeah you're totally right like who cares about the presentation in, in itself you, what you're interested in is a set, what you're interested in assessing is whether they're developing those skills right so you would need, probably need to do it i imagine through covert observation <laughs> um, well, i mean it can be over i
0: mean it doesn't matter people especially kids they uh, well they may freak out at the beginning but yeah Nowadays, we have cameras everywhere anyways, especially in, the in UK. Britain, it seems yeah. to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, everything's fine in Britain. So <laughs> we don't need to worry about that. It's all good. We've got a lot further than I expected, actually. We kind of covered quite a lot of stuff. Um, we still
0: don't have a curriculum, so,
1: though. Okay. Yeah, we've got a speculative curriculum. But um, yeah. we, what is quite interesting, and I think we're going to save it for a future time, but is that the, the people that might be facilitating this speculative curriculum – some of the surprising effects that research is suggesting it can have on the the teachers themselves, I think is really interesting. And that's something that we should come back to. Yeah, absolutely. So stay tuned. So time for a summary of today's episode. The topic was, can wisdom be taught? The first question we asked was, in fact, should wisdom be taught? Do children not have a right to a certain period of time where no expectation is on them to behave wisely? And the point at which one should become to take responsibility for their own decisions is largely a arbitrary decision depending on various cultural factors. We then discussed the idea of a, a speculative curriculum and what it might entail and it appears that there are a number of interventions and activities that people can do to boost their wise reasoning in the short term but one of the problems is it takes a certain amount of wisdom or social intelligence to even understand when such interventions are necessary. And we spoke about some potential technological solutions to this. Also, we discussed the fact that the teaching of ethics itself doesn't appear to change people's behaviour and make them any more ethical. So again, this is another problem for a a wisdom-related curricula. Um, So it seemed to become apparent quite quickly that the simple sort of teaching of knowledge approach it was not going to be um, sufficient here and some sort of experiential component is going to be pretty much essential both are going to be key really to make this work we also spoke about traditionally quite often many different belief systems and traditions use sages and exemplars as ways of conveying wisdom And we spoke a little bit about the limits within that, that if you present edited highlights of famous sages' lives, they can come across more like saints. And and whilst they can um, be quite impressive, it can be dispiriting to a certain extent. So they need to be presented with the context in which their decisions were taken. And that would perhaps be more enabling to people learning about their lives. Finally, we spoke about wise environments. Are there ways that We can, in fact, help through not just only the content, but also the context and the architecture of the learning environment itself. We spoke about the merits of how group work might, in fact, boost some of the components of wise reasoning, such as intellectual humility and the integrating of multiple perspectives. And we both seem to agree that jigsaw learning, which was a combination of individual work, and group work where you have to work with other people um, seems to show a lot of potential. So that was today's episode. Fascinating for both of us. If you enjoyed it, please rate us on iTunes favorably. And we look forward to diving more into this next time.